you want to try some really good instant coffee, go to csinstant.coffee, use the code ADVENTURE at checkout, and it'll save you 50%. Long supporters of the show, so I really appreciate them, and I'd really appreciate it if you went and supported them. Thank you. You know, there's probably 10 to 12 that you can do without a ton of, of extra effort as opposed to the summer. But but when people are asking me, you know, I, I want to do a 14er in the winter, which one should I try? There, there's three I always point out. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. There's a number of reasons I chose this episode. One is the motivation of one of our most recent guests, Jason Hardrath, who climbed Mount Shasta over the weekend like it was nothing. Pretty inspiring. And I thought, you know what? I don't climb 14ers in the winter. And I don't know why. I guess I just don't think about it. I don't, I, I'm busy usually, but also I, I don't feel like I can half the time. You know, whether trailheads are covered, you know, my truck needs work or, you know, the baby needs something. It's always something, you know. But I realized, you know, there, there, is, there really is no reason I can't go out and try it. I don't need a ton of gear. And what I liked about Jeff's approach is that he makes it very, you know, very approachable, essentially. Uh, lists some mountains that you can climb. And by the way, this episode is three years old, but uh, it still applies, of course. And if you're not familiar with what a 14er is, it's a mountain that is higher than 14,000 feet. And here in the States... Uh, there's a huge cluster of them in Colorado, depending on your definition, between 54 and 58, so a ton. And outside of Colorado, um, there's kind of a handful in different states, but I think California is the next highest with like nine or something. Um, but the thing is, a lot of mountains are over 14,000 feet. None are higher than that. None are higher than 15,000. So uh, the term altogether is called 14ers. And so they're a huge challenge here in Colorado. People, you know, set out to climb them all. I've done about 20 of them. Um, some of the harder ones, some of the easier ones, some in the middle. And they've all been just an incredible experience. But it's typically, for me, in the summer months. So I have seen people climbing them lately and was inspired and said, you know what? We shouldn't have to feel like winter is this time of year where you, where you can't do anything. And obviously, a lot of people ski. I don't ski a whole lot, so it does feel a little bit more closed in than the summer. But let this let this episode be motivation for you, no matter if you're climbing mountains or just hiking, cross-country skiing, fat tire biking out on some trails. Just let it be motivation to you to get out there and have some fun this winter. You know, we've still got a few months of winter, those in the cold states, so... Uh, let's not let it slip by. But anyway, uh, also you probably saw there is an announcement. We have uh, uh, some friends of the show reached out needing a third partner for an expedition coming up at the later later in this month. It's in Greenland. It's a pretty big expedition. They've got some sponsors for to, to make a documentary, so they preferably want a filmmaker. If you want details about that, listen to the episode I posted yesterday about it. It's just like a little two- to three-minute announcement episode. All the details for that are in the show notes. Check it out if for some reason that strikes you as something you can pull off in a matter of a few weeks. Uh, it's a six-week expedition, by the way. <laughs> um, all the details are there. It's right there waiting on you. But anyway, let's get into the episode. Enough of me. 
blabbering on. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today, I have returning guest, Jeff Golden, with us. Jeff Golden works with the Colorado Mountain Club, and we interviewed Jeff all the way back on episode 54, so that's over 150 episodes ago. And Jeff really did a fantastic job of explaining what the sport of climbing 14ers is all about. So, Jeff moved into New Mexico years ago and climbed his first 14er from there. He climbed Sneffels and just fell in love with the sport, mountaineering. And one thing led to another. He ended up at the Colorado Mountain Club. Since then, he's climbed all the 14ers, most of them multiple times. And he's here today to talk about climbing them in the wintertime, which is a whole different ball game from summer climbing of the 14ers. And I'm excited to hear about winter ascents on Colorado's 14ers. So, Jeff, welcome to the program. Hey, yeah, thanks. Uh, glad to be back again. It's uh, it's been cool to see. Um, you know, most people used to think 14ers were, were there's 14er season. It's only in the summer. You can do it from from May to September or so. But uh, more and more people have been getting interested in in climbing year round and climbing in the winter. And it's uh, it is a whole different ball game, and it's it's super interesting to me, and it's a whole new challenge. And uh, I mean, I'm pretty psyched just to just to talk to you about it. Well, Jeff, I'm going to tell our listeners if they want the details about 14ering as a sport to go back to episode 54 and listen to that because he did such a great job. We don't need to repeat all that. But for the new listeners who don't even know what a 14er is, I mean, we have listeners from all over the planet now. So just real briefly, what are 14ers and, and what's this all about? Yeah. So we have um, Colorado's Lucky and we have so many high peaks and we have 14ers, which are peaks that are above 14,000 feet in elevation. Um, depending on who you ask, we have between 53 and, and 59 of them just based on some little different differing criteria. I think we, we went into that in, in episode 54 a little bit. Sure. Um, most of them, especially in the summer, are, are pretty gentle. You know, you can walk up. There's there's trails. There's crowds. Um, it's, a, it's a very popular pastime. You know, some people will, will just want to do a couple and, and scratch it off their bucket list. Some people get the bug and try and do them all. Um, you know, people ride their bikes between them and do an entire human-powered journey. You know, some people climb them all in, in the summer if they're a college student or something like that. And it's just a really popular, like, really cool thing to do uh, in Colorado. You know, there's tons of blog posts and magazine articles and such talking about it. It's just getting uh, more and more popular. And, you know, for good reason. It's it's super fun. It's uh, one of the best ways you can get outside in Colorado, and it's a great uh, great way to get some exercise. You know, I would have to tell people the the easier 14ers are all still serious hikes. You know, it's not for the faint of heart, but almost anybody can do a 14er if they practice some of the, the wisdom on how to get up a mountain. So it's something that has a, it's a good point of entry for, for mountaineering for just about anybody, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah. You know, I, I often refer to it as a uh, mountaineering 101. You know, a lot of people will, will work their way through the 14ers and there is a, it's a nice progression where you can start off with the, the quote unquote easiest ones, which like you said, are still difficult. They're still um, at very least half day hikes that involve you know, six to eight miles and 3,000 feet of elevation gain. Um, but yeah, it, it's, and then you, you work up, you know, some of them you have to scramble. They're class three. You have to use your hands and feet and actually do some rock climbing moves. And then the, the most difficult ones combine some, some difficult moves with, uh, with some exposure where there's significant risks. But most people don't use ropes. They're still all pretty much considered walk ups in the grand scheme of, of mountaineering. But uh, it's a great introduction. People that do all the 14ers regularly go on to, to climb Mount Rainier, climb all across the world. Um, you know, become expert rock climbers, expert ice climbers. It's a great introduction to 
to mountaineering, especially in Colorado. I think it's a marvelous sport. And Jeff, I started climbing 14ers before I moved to Colorado, which is a long time ago, back in 1988. And I've, you know, checked a few off every summer since then almost and uh, have not climbed them all yet because I do so many other things. But it's been such a rewarding thing for me. And, you know, I, I did an entire episode, Jeff, on how to climb a mountain. A day trip mountaineering mm-hmm. is what I called it. And there are a lot of details in there that people can go through to find out about summer climbing. And you and I talked about it at length in episode 54 as well. So there's lots of information on how to do this. Great resources on our website, adventuresportspodcast.com. But winter mountaineering hasn't been discussed that much. And it's really a whole different ball game. So how did you get into winter mountaineering? So yeah, I got into to winter mountaineering pretty early on in my um, 14ers quest. You know, I started doing um, 14ers and I the first summer I, I was in... New Mexico, and then I moved up to, to Denver later on, and I probably had done, over the course of a year, maybe 10 to 12 14ers, and then it got to be, started getting cold, you know, snow arrived, and um, I just wanted to keep doing it, you know, I couldn't imagine a winter without this sport that I'd grown to love, that had, that had kind of been my main passion in life for a little bit, and so I, I just started researching and trying to find ways to keep doing it, and sure enough, um, this was even only um, five or six years ago, and there just wasn't much information on it. At the time, there were only three people that had climbed all the 14ers in winter. It wasn't really a super popular endeavor, but there were resources. You know, there was um, 14ers.com has a lot of good information. You can sort through their trip reports by um, calendar dates. You can look at, you know, pick a mountain and then look for trip reports that were in the in the calendar winter, and you can see the routes that people have taken and such. But yeah, I, I just jumped right in, and um, you know, luckily there's there's some good good mentors as well. I think I went on something called the uh, winter welcomer group hike on Quandary Peak, which still happens every year. Uh, not quite in, in true winter. It's it's in the end of October, uh, around Halloween most years. But it, it's it's winter conditions. Usually there's snow on the ground and you have to carry all the gear. But that was my first you know cold weather conditions hike, and it was with a bunch of people that, um, like I said, they do it every year. And the and the purpose of it is to kind of mentor people that are new to it and help them get their gear dialed in and their um, you know learn more about safety and such. And then just later on in that year, you know, I just dove into it. You know, there's a, a ton of 14ers that you can do in the winter without a, a much more difficulty than you can do in the summer. Um, some of them, you can even get to the normal summer trailheads, the routes the same, you know, you have to have the extra gear and you have to have the extra awareness and the extra knowledge, but they're not that much harder than they are in the summer. So I just kind of kept working through my 14er list. You know, I, I looked at ones I hadn't done and I kind of cross-referenced that with what, what winter 14ers seemed manageable, what, what I thought I could do at the time with the people I was, I was hiking and climbing with at the time. And, you know, when, when I was that early on in my uh, 14er climbing, like I said, it only probably done 10 to 12, you know, there was a ton to choose from. And so I was able um, most weekends to find a peak that was reasonable, you know, when, when the weather agreed with me and just keep going. And I, I did that until I finished the 14ers, you know, I climbed year round, um, mostly just trying to, to do the initial list. I, I count 58. And then for a brief period, you know, winter 14ers became my next goal and I cranked them out uh, for the next two winters. I think, you know, that was, again, that was just kind of what I was dedicating my recreational life to. And you get to a point with the winter 14ers, which I think we'll probably get into a little bit where it's not, you know, a lot of mountaineering, a lot of being outdoors in general is about mitigating risk and choosing good weather windows and avoiding avalanche danger and just doing all these things you can to, to reduce the risk to as close to zero as possible. But especially as you get into the more difficult 14ers in winter, that's just not possible. You, you have to cross avalanche paths. You have to, uh, you know, put yourself out there a little bit, a little bit more than I was, um, 
willing to. So, you know, I, I've done 25 in winter now, and I'll probably keep plugging away. Uh, I could see myself doing between 40 and 45 in winter over, over the course of my mountaineering life, but it's not something that I, I think I'll ever finish, you know, because there are some, like I said, there's, there's the objective hazards are, are too high and there's no way to, to reduce that, those risks to, to nil. So, um, you know, it's, it's fun. It's manageable. People kind of look at it as something that's so far out there and difficult and cold that it's, it's unattainable, but it's really not, especially if you've done a handful of 14ers in the summer, you know, it's, it's a good logical step to, to keep on, um, so Jeff, we talked on the last show when you were on a lot about weather in the summer climbing and lightning is the biggest challenge, although you can have freak snowstorms and cold rainstorms and stuff like that. What kind of weather challenges do you have to worry about in the wintertime? I know it's got to be different. Yeah, so it, it changes completely where you're not so worried about lightning. Um, a lightning storm is very rare in the winter. Um, it, as it goes on in, into March, as winter comes to a close, maybe you have a chance it's called thunder snow is the phenomenon where it's a snowstorm with lightning and thunder, but it's really not a concern in winter. Um, you're more worried about obviously snow and cold. And the biggest weather concern for me, honestly, um, with winter 14ers is the wind. Uh, there's just something about, about Colorado and the 14ers. You know, I, I, I've heard, I'm not, I'm not a weather man, so I don't want to get into the science of it too much, but I've heard that the, the way the jet stream works is basically the, the top of our peaks, you know, the, the 13, 14,000 foot peaks, are actually jutting up into the jet stream. So you're getting these extreme winds almost all the time. Um, it's not uncommon to check a forecast for a winter 14er and see winds that are 50, 60 miles an hour gusting to 90. You know, it's, it's like a hurricane up there and you can get nice days. Um, I've had perfectly clear days, um, where there's, where there's no wind. It's, it's beautiful. You know, you're, you're out there in the middle of January in a, in a t-shirt. Um, but most of the time that's not the case. That only happens a couple times every winter. Uh, you usually have to deal with at least a moderate wind, you know, 10, 20 miles an hour is kind of a good weather day in the winter. And when you combine that with the cold, you know, you get wind chills that are routinely below zero. So just, just staying warm is, is the biggest concern and, and finding ways to battle that wind. And obviously, you know, it's going to snow, especially up high. But what you really have to watch out for with the snow is one, visibility and navigation. You always have to know where you're going and what you have to do to, to get back down to where you were, you know, especially if, if you're caught in a, a whiteout or something where you can't see anything. And then you have to be aware of the uh, avalanche conditions and, and how they're changing. Um, but yeah, the, the biggest, biggest hassle to me in the winter is just that wind. And you have to, you have to carry enough gear to, to cover literally every exposed inch of skin if, if, if needed. You know, you have to have goggles, you have to have a balaclava or some sort of face mask, um, a nice, a nice soft shell or hard shell that, that really cuts, cuts that wind. Um, many, you know, multiple layers, um, down synthetic fleece, wool, you know, whatever you need to make sure you're staying warm enough. And I always carry mittens as the last resort, you know, most of the time you're fine in gloves and I, I carry gloves on every winter hike too. But when that wind really starts kicking and the wind chill gets down there below zero, um, you know, mittens have, have saved my hands on more than one occasion. Let's take a quick message break and hear from one of our sponsors. Support for Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. They are the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your uh, most sensitive areas. Let's just put it that way. Uh, The third-generation Manscaped trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents. Millions of people all over the world have been nick-free thanks to Manscaped Advanced Skin Safe Technology. I remember not long ago, I was making fun of my dad for not having a very hairy chest, and he told me 
that grass doesn't grow on the playground, baby. And uh, yeah, it might be more than you want to know about me and my dad's relationship, but I don't have that luxury. I do have more hair than him and it needs to be groomed. And so I use Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0 to make that happen. It is redesigned, it's electric, and it was engineered by a team that spent over 18 months perfecting the greatest hair trimmer ever created. So manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. And even folks like me that do have hair to groom can do so gracefully. Each battery charge lasts up to 90 minutes. And if you're grooming for more than 90 minutes, you might need to see a doctor. You can get 20% off plus free shipping by using the code ADVENTURE at manscaped.com. And trust me, you and your partner will thank us. That's manscaped.com using the code ADVENTURE for 20% off and free shipping. Manscaped.com. All right, let's get back to the episode. You know, one thing that I've noticed is people are worried about the cold, so they take a lot of warm weather gear. Good idea. But man, if you're too warm and you start to sweat, and then you get a little higher up, and you start to cool back down and you're wet, and that's killer. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of a rule of thumb is you're not supposed to sweat when you're when you're hiking in the winter. And, you know, in, in reality, you're going to, especially if it's a somewhat warm day and, and you're going uphill and you're, you're snowshoeing through deep snow, you know, sweat's kind of inevitable. But you have to manage that as much as you can. And I always try to go at a slow enough pace where, you know, even if you're sweating a little bit, uh, which you really can't avoid some days, you, you don't want to be drenched. You don't want to be pouring sweat like maybe you would be in the summer. Uh, you want to manage that, you know, shed layers, make sure you're not overheating because yeah, if you're, if your base layer gets, gets soaking wet, you know, even if it's a nice synthetic base layer and, and will dry in, in, an, in an hour or less, you know, you're still, if, if you get up above tree line and, and you're wet and your clothes are wet and the wind starts kicking and, you know, the temperature drops a little bit, then it is uh, not a good time, I can speak from experience. Yeah, so... I think the layer idea is a good idea. And I've heard some people say that layering may not be the warmest option. And I think in some circumstances they have a point. But man, when it comes to being active and then slowing down, maybe you take a break. I I think you have to have layers that you can trade out quickly so you don't get too hot. And then when you slow down, you have a way to to stay warm. Yeah, and um, there's this whole genre of gear called, it's kind of known as the belay puffy, you know, basically it's just saying a, a super warm, you know, the warmest down or synthetic coat that you have. And, um, I always keep mine really easily accessible. Um, a lot of times, you know, I honestly don't wear it much other than if I'm hiking down at, at night and the temperatures dropped, um, significantly, or if I'm hanging out on the summit for a little bit, that's, that's most of the time where I wear my belay puffy, but I do keep it accessible because when you stop and sit down, if you want to sit down for 10 minutes and drink some hot chocolate and eat a, sa- eat a sandwich, you know, you're going to cool off rapidly. Um, so having that go-to just super warm layer that you know you can trust is uh, one of the most critical things you can do. Well, you know what? We kind of steered into gear here. Why don't we just go ahead and talk about the winter gear? We're talking about having lots of layers and warm clothes and that sort of thing, but give us a checklist. What would you say are the imperatives if you're going to climb a, a 14 or in the wintertime? Sure. So first of all, you know, the 10 essentials, everything you would carry in the summer. Um, and there, there's plenty of information online, and I'm, I'm sure it's probably been covered in several podcasts, but uh, that's kind of the baseline. So carry everything you would normally in summer. Um, you're probably going to need a little bit bigger pack. Um, I carry between a, depending on the day and the length, between a 30 and a 45 liter pack in winter, just because you have so much more stuff, and especially the um, some of the coats that, that take up more, you know, they're, they're bulkier, take up more room even when they're compressed. But um, 
yeah, I hike a little bit, a little bit warmer than most people. So my, my layers, uh, some people look at me like I'm crazy and I look back at them like they're crazy with their, you know, two extra jackets. But, um, you know, I, I like a, a normal synthetic base layer t-shirt, um, and then a, a nice thin, um, or medium weight fleece pullover. And that's kind of my, my normal outfit when I'm hiking uphill, even if it's a little bit cold or a little bit windy, I, I, my body just, is hot enough where I'm usually pretty comfortable in that, you know, just the, just the fleece layer. But I also uh, carry a midweight synthetic jacket um, that I put on if, if snow rolls in or it just gets a little, a little cold or a little windy. And then on top of that, I'll usually have a soft shell. If I'm expecting a lot of snow, I'll bring a, a hard shell or um, some sort of hybrid. But most days I just want that soft shell to, uh, to cut into the wind. You know, you're not even that worried. Even if it is snowing a little bit, our snow here in Colorado is so dry. The soft shell does the job 90% of the time. And then I carry that magical uh, belay puffy, which is, like I said, absolutely critical. Um, it's not something, you know, you can you can save money on, on gear in many different ways, but uh, definitely splurge and buy a super nice 800 fill heavy, you know, down perka because it's, um, it's just one of those things that, you know, I'd gladly trade money for comfort. And it's, uh, it's something that's just super nice to know that you have at the top of your pack if you're going to stop for a break. Or if you get up to the summit and you want to take some photos and hang out for 10 or 15 minutes, uh, just having that just bomber puffy that you know you can trust is uh, awesome. And then uh, lower down, you know, I, I again, soft shell pants usually get the job for me, uh, job done for me over uh, just a, a normal like mid-weight. Sometimes if it's super cold, like a, a full expedition weight um, base layer. And then I'll carry some hard shell pants in my pack. And I, I'll be honest with you, and five winters of, of winter climbing. I think I put them on once and I think even that was just to glissade, but it's nice to, uh, to, to know that if I need that extra leg layer, if I'm super cold or if it's super windy or, you know, if there's an accident and I have to spend a, a night out or sit in the snow for an extended period of time, having that extra layer, um, of waterproof pants is, is a nice, just part of the emergency kit. Um, boots are interesting because a lot of people think they have to get like four or $500 ice climbing boots, you know, the, the bright yellow or the bright orange ones you see at RAI. Uh, in the mountaineering boot section. But honestly, a, a lot of times for these winter 14ers, um, you want to get something that, that's warmer and more comfortable. It's basically a summer hiking boot like you would take on a on a backpacking trip with some insulation thrown in and some uh, additional waterproofing to keep the snow out. And um, they make quality, you know, pretty much every brand of boots makes quality winter hiking boots for between $100 and $300. You know, you don't, you don't have to go all in on these really fancy mountaineering boots. Um, I will say if, if you see yourself getting into something like wanting to climb Mount Rainier or wanting to get into ice climbing, then, you know, it's probably worth it to just go ahead and splurge on those, those expensive mountaineering boots because they last forever. But if all you want to do is go out and hike in the winter and do some winter 14ers, you know, you can get um, all sorts of boots. Just make sure they're waterproof. Make sure they, they come up to, to your ankle, uh, at least if not a little bit higher and uh, make sure they have insulation. Uh, just make sure they're, they're warm. And, and most of those, the tags when you're buying them, or if you go to any retail shop, you know, the salespeople should be able to direct you right to those. But um, yeah, I do almost all of my winter hiking in a pair of, um, I think, $200 La Sportiva Frost, I think they're called. Uh, and they're much warmer and more comfortable. Than, you know, I, I do a lot of ice climbing too. And I, whenever I can avoid wearing those uh, heavy, uh, really rigid ice climbing boots on a hike, I do. So, um, you know, just a nice pair of warm boots goes a long way. Do you recommend crampons and an ice axe or do you prefer snowshoes or do you just go with bare boots? So a lot of people get confused when they, when they think winter mountaineering, you know, they, they equate that with, with crampons and, and ropes and ice axes and such. 
And and absolutely, always carry an ice axe. You know, my rule of thumb is if there's snow on the ground, carry an ice axe, even if it's getting into to June or something, because you never know when you might have to traverse a slope or encounter a random patch of snow. And ice axes are obviously a life-saving tool. But to be honest, you know, winter 14er climbing is much more snowshoes, bare boots, and if anything, micro spikes than it is crampons. You know, a lot of times the slopes that are steep enough to warrant crampons and, and ice axes and ice tools are prime avalanche territory. So what you're trying to do mostly is avoid those areas. Um, I've, I've hardly ever doing a winter 14er worn crampons. Uh, those are much more a spring tool. Uh, they're more for actual, you know, technical ice climbing. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Snowshoes and then those those micro spikes, which are basically really lightweight trail crampons, are uh, are the way to go most of the time. You know, I I, I hardly ever even carry crampons on a, on a winter 14er. Well, in my experience, snowshoes have have been adequate. And, you know, they come with a, a nice crampon type claw on the bottom of them anyway. But one tip for people that haven't done it, if you're trying to go up a slope that's a little bit steeper and the snowshoes start to slide on you, you can kick steps in and not horizontal steps, but actually make your toe go down into the snow. And then the snowshoes will take you right on up. It works pretty well for me anyway. Yeah. And, and you can get uh, specialized snowshoes. They, they tend to be the, the higher end models, the more expensive ones, but they, they have this little wonderful contraption called a, a heel lift, where uh, if you're going up a steep slope, say 25, 30 degrees, you know, right, right below that normal avalanche threshold, um, you know, it really starts to kill your, your calves and make your legs tired, but you can just pop up this little bar uh, that goes right underneath your heel, and it basically just saves you that motion, and it, it makes it seem like the ground is a lot uh, less steep than it actually is. So, I recommend anybody that if you're in the market for snowshoes and, and you want to get into this sort of thing where you're going to be doing uh, steep trails, you know, climbing and snowshoes, uh, definitely invest in a pair that has that heel lift. You know, we climbed Parnassus last winter and had a ball doing that. And it's a 13 or not a 14 or, but one of the climbers on the way up was just bushed and was getting some altitude sickness. And he didn't have that, that belay puffy, you know? The situation was that he was getting altitude sickness, and he he just said, "You know what, guys? I think I'm just going to wait here, and you guys go ahead and summit and come back, and and I'll just wait for you guys." But it was it was really really cold and really really windy, and he didn't have adequate gear to sit still. He was okay if he was moving, you know, and generating heat. But I looked at him and I said, "Nah, dude, you're going to be hypothermic in five minutes." And so that's the one piece of gear that I picked out of your list there that I thought, man, that is really an important piece of safety equipment. In the end, we were close enough to the summit. I said, well, just go a little farther. Let's see how you do. And he was fine. He summited and had a great time and came back down. But um, I was not willing to leave him there alone without something like that to protect him. Yeah. And it's, um, I think we talked a little bit in my earlier um, podcast episode 54, where you want to carry enough to where you feel comfortable that, that you could survive a night out if you needed to. You know, if you rolled an ankle and couldn't get out and, and rescuers couldn't get to you, you know, you have to be able to survive whatever elements you're in. And um, I think, a, again, like a super nice belay jacket, belay puffy, just goes a long way in just making sure you can stay warm enough. And that's, um, it's just a nice peace of mind knowing that if you do get stuck out after dark or if you have to stop and sit still for an hour or two, just to know that you're not going to be freezing, that you're going to be, um, maybe maybe comfortable isn't the word, but you're going to be, surviving and you know you're not you're not putting yourself in a dangerous situation you know i'm not sure that we're selling the sport all that much talking about how cold <laughs> it is and how dangerous it can be and that kind of stuff so why do you do it why would you climb a 14er in the winter time it sounds kind of extreme yeah well i think you'll probably agree with me on this i think one of the biggest perks is that you avoid all of the crowds that that are getting more and more prevalent on the on all the 14ers especially the the easier more accessible ones to the front range cities so 
you go out in the winter, you know, if, if you do Quandary Peak on an August Saturday, you're going to be doing it with 200, 300 of your closest friends. And um, if you do that same hike on a January Saturday, you're going to see four or five other people. Maybe it's getting more popular, maybe 10 to 12, but it's still, it's nowhere near the zoo of, of the summer 14ers. So just having that true solitude and, and being out there in nature and being with yourself and your group and, and the, the people you're with um, and really just having that true wilderness experience that's getting harder and harder to find in Colorado is, is just an awesome perk. Um, I personally think the mountains are just so much more beautiful when there's snow on them. You know, the pictures are better. You're out there and you're, you're on the summit taking in all the views. And I mean, they're, they're gorgeous in the summer too, when there's no snow, but just the, the snow, the white, you know, the contrast between the white snow and the, the dark rocks, it just makes everything pop a little bit more in my mind. And it's just uh, so much prettier. And then even, even below tree line, you know, you're down there in the, um, in the, in the trees and the pines and the, the dead aspens and you have like the snow on the limbs and coming down on the branches and everything's just so quiet and still. And it's just such a cool experience that, that you can't really get in the summer. Um, and it, it is, it's just, just like the, the 14ers in general, it's a cool personal challenge. You know, you get a lot of fulfillment out of taking something that, um, when you're first introduced to the concept of, of climbing a 14er and then later, you know, climbing a 14er in winter, for a lot of people, you know, myself included, it seemed like such a far off goal, uh, borderline, you know, impossible or, or something um, that would take a lot of training and time to, to really do. And then to go out there and put forth the effort and put forth the research and, and go up there and do it, you know, just the feeling of, of accomplishment is uh, something it, it's almost impossible to describe, but it's uh, just one of the best feelings in the world for sure. I am totally with you on the beauty in the wintertime, man. I, the first winter 14er that I did was Elbert, the tallest 14er in Colorado. And it was a very cold day and the wind was just kicking. Matter of fact, I have a picture of myself leaning into the wind about 45 degrees. I mean, it was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, the wind was probably getting close to a hundred. Um, so it was not an ideal climbing day, but man, we got to the summit of Elbert. And looking out across the Sawatch Range, peak after peak after peak, as far as the eye could see in all directions, just white and caked with snow. I had never seen anything like that before, Jeff. And that was one of those moments that I would, I would, I would actually say was life changing. It impacted me so much. It was like, yeah, no, this is this is what living is about. I, I've got to make sure I always get these experiences into my life. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just. I don't, I don't think there's a way you can describe it without doing it. So I don't, I don't know if there's a stronger endorsement to just, if, if this is something that you're, you're contemplating, you know, if it's, you've done a couple 14ers in the summer and it's something you've loved and enjoyed and you need an extra little, you know, kick in the butt to, to go try one, you know, I think, I think we're selling it pretty good now. <laughs> right on. So let's talk about how difficult as far as strenuous it is in the summertime. Okay. It's a tough hike, right? Tough hike with altitude. So what about in the wintertime? Yeah. So the main thing is that, you know, you think of these summer 14ers and you're getting to the trailhead and you're driving, you know, five or 10 miles down this little dirt road in your uh, four-wheel drive vehicle to get to the trailhead. Uh, those roads are not plowed and they are totally covered in the in the winter. So you just have that extra distance um, for a lot of them. There, there are a couple, which, which I'll touch on later, that you can actually get to their summer trailhead in the winter. But almost all of them, you're looking at at least a couple extra miles of uh, just, just walking along a road to get to the summer trailheads that aren't accessible in the winter. Um so yeah, it's just extra distance, which obviously comes with some extra elevation gain. So you take a long hike in the summer and you make it even longer in the winter. Um, you add in whether you're on snowshoes or uh, a backcountry ski setup, you know, whatever your your flotation system is to, to make sure you're not wallowing in the snow. Um, no matter what it is, it's a little bit of extra exertion and you just move a little bit slower. You know, it, 
things take more time in the winter because um, snowshoeing, I mean, it, it just, it just takes longer. It, it's more effort. It's slower. Um, and especially if you go out, you know, after a recent storm, if there's new snow on the ground and you're, you're, it's called breaking your own trench, you know, you're, you're walking forward in snowshoes and, and if somebody has gone before you, you're basically just following in their track and it's, it's almost just like walking. It's not any more uh, difficult than, than walking in, in plain boots without the snowshoes. But a lot of times if you're out there on your own, you're the one that's making that trench. You're the one packing down the snow and that's just a whole nother level of exertion. And that's why a lot of times, you know, people will travel in groups of, of two to four or more in the winter. And that, that person in the lead is doing like twice as much work as the people behind them. So you switch off like every 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, depending on, on how strong the lead person is, and just share that duty of trail breaking because that is uh, just killer. It's it's so much more, it takes so much more energy. It burns your legs and only the strongest of climber, you know, the most in shape, you know, hardcore diehard climbers can go out there uh, solo and break trail for hours on their own. You know, that's why having partners and having friends is uh, is even more important and fun in the winter to, to cut down on that trail breaking. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, <laughs> I I kind of chuckle because I remember watching my nephew who's, oh, he's six feet tall and about 210 pounds and it's all muscle. And I, I was watching him break trail with snow up to almost his waist. <laughs> and man, it'll, it'll stop you. Even if you're a big, strong, powerful person, then breaking trail is tough. That's tough. Yeah, I... I had an experience when I climbed uh, Mount Evans in December a couple of years back, and it was me and and this one girl was my partner, and we, it was it was fine going for most of the time. We got to this one section, the last maybe 500 feet up to treeline, and once you're above treeline, a lot of these uh, 14ers are are more or less windswept. You know, the snow becomes uh, much less deep. You know, most people will um, take off their snowshoes and either carry them on their back or stash them. Uh, once you're above treeline, because you just don't need them anymore. You're on you're on the rock, or the, or the snow is more hard packed. But yeah, we, we were at this last 500 feet up to up to treeline, and it took us, I'm not kidding, it was probably three quarters of a mile and 500 feet, and it took us a solid like two and a half hours of just hip, uh, I mean, hip deep snow, even in snowshoes. Mm. I mean, every step took like 10 seconds, you know. Time for a quick message break. CS Instant Coffee is definitely the best instant coffee I've ever had. In fact, just out of convenience and how good it tastes, I decided for the last year, I've been taking it on every single adventure I go on from backpacking to bike tours, uh, just from convenience sake, it's really high quality and it keeps me from having to take a bunch of other equipment out in the woods. Uh, but it's not just for going out on adventures. My wife actually takes some to work every single day with her. She takes a couple packs, uh, to refill her coffee mug, uh, as a teacher. She doesn't have a ton of time to, um, have to, you know, make fresh coffee all the time. So she just needs a little hot water, can pour the coffee in and she's ready to go for her next class and not waste a lot of time. So if you're crunched for time in your job, uh, I would definitely suggest giving it a shot because they have been huge supporters of the show for the last year. And I really appreciate everything they've done for us. And it would mean a lot to me to go support them. So if you're interested, go to csinstant.coffee and uh, support those who are supporting the show. It would go a long way. Thank you. All right, let's get back to the episode. The thing I love about it, Jeff, and you can attest to this, I'm sure, is that to beat the lightning in the summer means you're getting up really early sometimes to start, you know, well before daylight. In the wintertime, really the only concern is can I get down before dark? Yeah, and, you know, that is one of the nicer things about, about winter 14ers is you don't have to, for the shorter ones, for the ones that you don't think will take more than you know, six to eight hours, you don't, you don't have to wake up and start at five in the morning. You can start at first light, you know, be at seven or 8am 
uh, it's known among people that do winter fourteeners a lot as a, as a gentleman start, you know, just getting a little bit later, sleeping in a little bit more. Um, the caveat is the day is much shorter. You know, you're not, you're not, you don't have daylight until 9 p.m. anymore. It gets dark at 4:30 or 5, and so you just have to plan for that. And um, it's just kind of a fact of life that you, you just know you'll probably be descending by headlamp. But you try, you try to plan around that by saying, you know, I want to be back on the road or I want to be back to the solid trench that I made this morning by the time it gets dark. So that way it's just an easy, you know, you turn on your headlamp and just cruise out. There's no route finding. There's no worry of getting lost. You're just following a very easy um, navigational aid, whatever it is. But yeah, I, I, I normally, just because it's it's so dang cold, you know, I, I usually start most of my winter 14ers around around sunrise is what I try and time it for. But just, just accept the fact that I'm probably going to be coming down in the dark. Sure. Well, here's a question for you. I had an experience last winter that I hadn't had before and I don't want to ever have again. And that was, it was cold enough that my water bottle froze. So I ended up mountaineering for about nine hours without water. And I could have stopped and melted snow. You know, we had the gear with us to do that, but we were just wanting to keep going. And by the time we got back down, man, I was so dehydrated, it was actually dangerous. How do you keep your water from freezing? What do you do? So yeah, there's there's multiple techniques, and that's certainly, uh, I think, something that's probably happened to everybody at some point who, who does this kind of thing. Uh, my first rule of thumb, and, and some people will disagree with me, and um, I think they're wrong, but uh, you, <laughs> you just don't you just don't use uh, don't use a normal like camelback or like hydration bladder um, that the tube because it's so constricted it's so small um, it happens almost every like first time winter 14 or hiker I've seen that that's used those camelback um, bladders has the same issue where it freezes in the tube and even though the water is accessible it's it's in your bladder inside your pack the tube you know the water in the tube is frozen solid um, there are ways to get around that they make insulating tubes for those um, hydration bladder tubes, uh, people say you can just you can just blow, when you're done drinking, just blow all the water back out. But I'll tell you, when when it gets super cold, even those uh, those insulating tubes for those for those hydration bladders, uh, they don't really work. Um, you can you can shove it inside your own jacket and, and figure out ways to jerry rig it. But it's it's uh, I think it's a little bit more hassle than it's worth than just to say you know those hydration bladders are great for the summer, but in the winter you're back to your standard um, Nalgene's or water bottles. And what I what I usually do is I I get those little insulating um, covers. You can get them for like 10 or $15 at any outdoor store that basically just provides some, uh, an insulating cover for uh, water bottles and it keeps them a little bit warmer. Um, one little technique you can use is you can, like say you have one of those um, Nalgene insulators. They usually have a little carabiner and something where you can hook it to, to an outside of a pack. So it's always accessible, you know, kind of like those hydration bladders. Um, you can always reach it with your hand and get a drink of water whenever you want without having to take off your pack or whatnot. But if you put the... Um, the water bottle in those insulating tubes upside down. Um, it just keeps it from uh, from freezing a little bit. That helps. Adding in uh, just this energy drink mix, you know, something that, that makes the water a little bit more, um, I guess, dense is the word. I don't know. It it makes the freezing points a little bit lower. Um, I know some people that, that add just not much, but like a splash of, of vodka because that, that lowers the freezing point. Um, so there, there are some techniques there. And then just to make sure that I always have something to drink, something to hydrate myself, even if even if something, you know, if I have an algae in my pack in an insulating uh, cover, you know, I, I don't think that would ever freeze. But just in case it ever did, I, I always carry a thermos of, uh, of hot tea as well, um, which will, um, I, I can't think of a scenario where that would where that would freeze. You know, the thermos I have keeps it steaming hot for like eight hours. So that, that's that's just a good way to make sure you always have something to drink. But yeah, there's there's all sorts of techniques. Um, what I usually do, like I said, is just use those, those um, Nalgene insulators, 
some hot tea, and then I usually mix it in some like Gatorade mix or something just to make sure the, the freezing point is a little bit lower. You know, the idea that you just said about putting your water bottle upside down, I think that's great advice. I think that's part of where I messed up. I like the Nalgene bottles with the, the small top instead of the big top, mm-hmm. but that small top can freeze solid. And that was part of my problem is I had my water bottle right side up, which means that, it you know, water freezes from the top down. So where did it freeze first? Right in that narrow neck where I needed to get a drink. So I just locked out all the water that was in the bottle. But if I had turned it upside down, like you said, then it would have, if it froze, it would have started freezing on the bottom, not the top. Yep, exactly. That's the, that's the idea behind it. That's awesome. Cool, man. Well, it, it sounds like there's an awful lot to this beyond summer 14ering, but it sounds like it's a lot of fun and, and very rewarding too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, it's basically, it's taking all of the, the things you've learned from, from winter 14ers and adding, you know, doubling the amount of, of gear and, and knowledge you need, but it's certainly accessible once you're, um, once you're comfortable doing summer 14ers, you know, winter 14ers are, are certainly something that's within anybody's grasp. Uh, it's, it's an expensive sport, you know, it's something you have to, um, buy a lot of gear for, um, you know, the, the boots and the belay puffy, uh, on their own are probably going to be a $500 investment, even if you find a good deal. So it's, um, it's not cheap by any means, but you know, you, you can accrue gear as you go. Um, and it's, uh, it's something that if you really want to do, you know, it's, it's definitely worth the investment and the gear lasts forever. Once you buy it once, um, you know, you, you might, you might want to upgrade or get something more jazzy, but, um, the, the things you have typically work for, for years and years. Well, it's cool because you don't have to buy a lift ticket to do it. Once you're geared up, then, you know, it's free to go. <laughs> so exactly. that's fun. Tell us a little bit about special safety concerns. I, you know, mentioned Avalanche Train a little bit, but I always like to talk about that. It is probably one of the most dangerous things about mountaineering. So what about avalanches? Sure. So especially for the for the beginner or, or the, the easiest or more accessible of the winter 14ers, um, most of most of the reason those are considered the easier ones and the ones that people do first are because there are easy or, or obvious routes where you can avoid any avalanche danger whatsoever. Um, you know, when you get into talking about difficulty and the most difficult winter 14ers, um, you know, there's there's scrambling and there's climbing and there's exposure just like in the summer, but you're really adding in just the, the inevitability of, of avalanche danger and crossing avalanche paths. Um, but the, the, the best thing you can do, and, and, and I would recommend it if there's, one takeaway from this entire podcast is um, don't don't go out in the winter in the mountains where, where you might encounter avalanche slopes without at least taking something called an avalanche awareness course. And they're offered for many different organizations, uh, many of them for free. Most of them are, are one to two hours. It's not a huge commitment, um, but you really get an, an, at least an introduction to an understanding of, of what you're looking for, what you're looking at, how avalanches work, and most importantly, uh, what exact terrain to avoid. Um, the, the Colorado Mountain Club, my employer, we have several avalanche awareness courses, uh, Boulder, Denver, Fort Collins, um, Colorado Springs, you know, kind of all over. Um, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, CAIC, uh, does several every winter. Uh, Friends of Birth and Pass is, is a local nonprofit that does free avalanche awareness clinics uh, across the Front Range pretty much, I, I would say, almost a couple times a month during the winter. Um, there's, all, there's all sorts of organizations that are offering this kind of very introductory level training for avalanches. And I, I would strongly recommend going to one before you, before you even go snowshoeing, if we're, you know, if we're not even talking about winter 14ers, but uh, before you got in the winter, having that basic introduction to avalanches is critical. And then you can go up from there. Um, you know, you can get an avalanche level one certification, which usually costs between 200 and $300. Um, and, and just gives a much more in depth, you know, it's usually several classroom sessions with some field days where you're out there actually 
studying the snow and getting to know it a little bit more. Um, you can go up into to avalanche level two, where you actually get much more in depth into the science of it, which is uh, where a lot of backcountry skiers and, and ski mountaineers, you know, the people that are out there um, specifically targeting avalanche terrain, you know, the, the, the slopes that are the most fun to ski in the winter are also the most avalanche prone. So um, they really have to have to know how to dig a snow pit and know what they're looking at and know how the layers are bonding and all this sciencey stuff. Um, so depending on what you want to do, there's all sorts of, uh, of levels of avalanche education you can get. But at a very basic level, there's really no excuse not to go to one of these avalanche awareness seminars. Uh, they're either free or they're under $100. You know, they're, uh, they're very affordable. Uh, they only last um, one, to, one to three hours, I would say. Some of them that you have to pay for are probably like three hours and then have a field day on the weekend or something. But it's just basically teaching you how to avoid avalanche terrain, what to look for, and how to get around it. And it's just absolutely essential knowledge to have if you're going to do any kind of backcountry recreation in the winter. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. It's uh, it's really important. And I always say this, I, I've said it over and over again on the show. A lot of people in Colorado are aware of the dangers because, you know, the fatalities hit the news here every winter. But people from out of state don't always know. And we have an awful lot of listeners from around the world. So if you come to Colorado and you want to go into the backcountry in the wintertime, realize that uh, it's not just a walk in the park. You have to have some skills to, to stay safe. So just want to always try to get the word out about that. Yeah, and it's something you, you really have to stay constantly vigilant about. You always have to keep your head on a swivel and be assessing the snowpack and looking up at what slopes you're about to cross under or down at what slopes you're about to go over. And um, a lot of accidents, unfortunately, uh, we had a bad accident. At, I think it was Loveland Pass about two years ago where um, – a whole group of skiers was buried and killed and they were all educated. They, they all had had extensive avalanche training and they just walked under a slope where they could, they could have walked a hundred feet in the other direction and just skirted the slope and been in a completely safe terrain. But it's just, you know, I, I wasn't there. I don't know what was happening, but it's just something you always, every, every five minutes you're an avalanche train, you have to be looking around and assessing and trying to figure out what kind of what kind of dangers are presenting themselves and just just always know where you are in relation to an avalanche path. Yeah, it's kind of tricky stuff. You know, we skied Loveland Pass a few years ago. I think it was the same year as the accident that you're talking about. And when we were there, the snow was consolidated. There was no no real risk. And we had a great time. And then a few weeks later, there the sun had created a slide layer and a big heavy snow came down. And these guys you're talking about got in trouble. So the, the weather matters, the day matters, the snow conditions matter, and the snow conditions change with altitude. So what's good where you are might be absolutely lousy, you know, 500 verts higher. So just telling people, get the education and know what you're doing. Yeah. And, and just, just one more plug for the CAIC, the Colorado um, Avalanche Information Center. Uh, they publish daily avalanche forecasts uh, that, are, that are zoned to so where they have them, you know, for the Swatch range, for the Sangre de Cristo range, for the Elk range. And so you can go in and I try to make a habit, you know, most people, they sit down at their desk uh, in the morning and they have a, a a habit of reading, you know, a certain, they check a couple sites, you know, and then, and then they get on with their work day. And, and I always incorporate CAC's uh, daily forecast into my morning reading, just even if it's a, if it's a Tuesday and, and I'm not even going to get out that weekend, you know, to, just to know what the snowpack is doing, how it's being affected by storms, by wind, you know, all that kind of stuff. And just having a working knowledge of what's exactly happening with the snow is, uh, it's a powerful tool. Yeah, that's a cool part about adventure sports is it's not just when you're out doing the sport that you get to enjoy it. What you're talking about, it's fun. You know, keeping track of what's going on out in the mountains and kind of having an idea, even when you can't go up yourself, 
that's what I love about adventure sports. You know, you can, you can enjoy them in all sorts of different ways, even when you're not doing them. Oh, for sure. Absolutely agree. C-A-I-C. Is that .org or .com? How does that, what's their URL? Do you know? Um, you know, I'm not sure. I usually just Google it. <laughs> all right. I'll or look it up. Tell you what, here's what I would like to know next. Tell us a story about just an amazing day of winter climbing on a 14er. What was it like? Tell us about some of the experiences you had along the way. Yeah, so um, there's a couple, but but to choose one, I, I did uh, Mount Massive, which is the second highest peak in Colorado. Um, it's it's just, just a hair below Mount Albert, and it's right next to it. It's a very impressive peak to look at. It lives up to its name, for sure, of being massive. And um, there's a really long route. I can't remember the exact statistics of mileage and elevation gain, but it starts pretty much in the town of Leadville. It starts from the Leadville fish hatchery. And uh, we go up and the reason this trip stands out is it's been one of the, one of the few that I've actually incorporated like a backcountry winter camp. So we, we had our full heavy, you know, like 60 pound packs with our four season tents and zero degree sleeping bags and all of our gear. And we hiked in several miles and uh, camped right at Treeline and just, just, you know, the experience of camping in the summer is amazing and it's being out there in nature and, and, and everything. But in the winter, it's just, like I said, it's so, so quiet and so calm and it just feels like everything kind of crystallizes, um, figuratively and literally, I guess. Um, and just having that experience of feeling truly out there, you know, we're out there in the middle of winter. There's, there's no, um, ATVs or, or hunters or other people hiking or camping or whatnot. It's, it's, it's us within, you know, like a six mile radius probably. And, um, and then the next day, we almost didn't go on the trip because the the wind forecast was one of those really heinous days of of being like 60 mile an hour sustained with gusts close to 100 or something. Oh, and that's tough. Yeah, well, well, this is kind of the epitome of the of the story where sometimes you can look at a weather forecast and and you just kind of have to go and and see for yourself sometimes and be be totally willing to turn around if you have to. But you know, we saw the forecast and and we had we we'd been planning the trip for a few weeks and we we're like, well, let's just worst case scenario, we'll go have a fun winter camp and go trod just above tree line and then tuck tail and run, you know, it still be a fun weekend outside. Um, but we got up and it just so happened that the wind was blowing in exactly the right direction. And Mount massive is, is so massive that the wind was literally blowing from the other side of the mountain. And I guess getting pushed up and to where, to where our side, we were on the, the East Ridge of, of Mount massive. We had almost no wind whatsoever. It was, a, it was a clear sunny day and we could hear the wind, you know, on, on the surrounding peaks and coming over the top of the summit and it sounded like a jet engine, but where we were, it was, I mean, it was almost hot. You know, we were, we were wearing like t-shirts and sweating, you know? Um, but it was really cool. It was, a, it was a long route. You know, I, I can't remember many times where I've been more exhausted than I was. And I got up to within the last couple hundred feet of the summit and my buddy was already up there and he was like, you know, hooting and hollering and, and encouraging me to finish off. And you get up there and you can just see, um, the wind on all the peaks and to be sheltered, it felt almost like we were in a little bubble. It was, uh, it was kind of a bizarre experience, but, um, I, I've never, the reason this trip stands out, I think, is I've never seen anything like that. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen a sea of peaks that are, that are being blasted by a hundred mile an hour wind, but it, uh, it just looked like, you know, a hundred Mount Everest with their snow plumes coming off of them. And we were up there, you know, we were on the second highest peak in Colorado at 14,400 and something feet. And, uh, just, just to look around and just take in like the, just, just absorb the, the extent of, of mother nature, you know, sitting there and, um, just, just admiring the, the sheer power of what we were watching and to know that we put in so much work and had a super cold night camping and that we, even before the trip, we were like, oh, we probably have like a 10% chance of actually summoning with this absurd forecast. Um, and actually, you know, accomplished our goal was just such a, I mean, like you said earlier, just such a life fulfilling accomplishment. Yeah, man, that sounds delightful. 
I know exactly what you're talking about when you get up there and you see things that you just don't see any other way. And it really is impactful. What a, an amazing experience it is to get up there. That's so cool. So I wanted to ask you about access. You mentioned that a lot of the 14ers you just can't hardly get to in the wintertime. Which ones can you get to? What would you recommend if people want to try it? Sure. So there's uh, there's several. I, I kind of always point people in the direction of, of three. Um, there's certainly, uh, you know, there's probably 10 to 12 that you can do without a ton of, of extra effort as opposed to the summer. But but when people are asking me, you know, I, I want to do a 14er in the winter, which one should I try? There, there's three I always point out. And the first one is Quandary Peak, which is one of the ones you, you point people toward that if they want to do their first 14 in the summer, you know, it's the same thing. Um, and the main reason being is the Quandary Trailhead for, for that mountain's East Ridge, uh, the standard route that everybody does, is um, you can access it in the winter. There, there's no extra road walking. There's there's nothing. It's all plowed. The trailhead starts in basically a residential neighborhood. So um, the same level of exertion in terms of, of mileage and elevation gain that you have to do in the in the summer is the same in the winter. So Quandary is a great one to start with. It's also, it follows the, the basically the crest of the East Ridge. So it avoids almost any avalanche danger. Uh, you know, there's certain days for sure after a big storm or avalanche dangers is, is heightened where, you know, something could slide on the East Ridge. And there's a there's a bowl right there. If you're if you're hiking up the east ridge of Quandary, on the right is a, is a big bowl of snow that you want to avoid. But if you stay on the summer trail, if you stay on the east ridge proper without venturing uh, off off route, basically, um, there's almost no avalanche danger. So basically, Quandary is is as easy in the winter as it is in the summer. Just adding in the extra gear and then the weather elements, um, which, which you know, not to minimize those, but uh, it's just kind of Quandary is unique in that you don't have to add any extra mileage or, or elevation gain. Um, the other one is, is Mount Bierstadt, which you do have to park a little bit lower. Um, I forget the name of the campground, but if you're driving up Gwinnella Pass from Georgetown, uh, there's a campground you get to that's about a mile and three quarters short of the actual summit of Gwinnella Pass. And they, they plow the road to there every winter so you can get to that trailhead. Um, and then from there, you're, you're just walking up the road of Gwinnella Pass for, it adds about three, three and a half miles round trip. But Mount Bierstadt is already kind of a short hike. It's like you know, six or seven miles and, and 3,000 feet or something. So even with the added distance in the winter, you know, with the, with the decreased access, it's still only like 11, 10 or 11 miles and maybe like 3,500 feet, which is, it's nothing to sneeze at, but in the, in the grand scheme of winter 14ers, it's still pretty, uh, pretty mellow. And the, um, the, the west slopes that you climb up, the standard route of Mount Bierstadt are generally pretty windswept. You know, there's a, I've done that peak two or three times in the, in the winter now. And a lot of times, once you're above treeline, uh, once you're above the, the willow section, you're actually climbing up the, the flanks of the mountain. You're just in, you're just in your boots, maybe some micro spikes, but it's, it's so windswept. Uh, there, there's hardly any avalanche danger in most conditions. And even, you know, in a lot of places, there's, there's hardly even much snow. You're just on the, the tundra and the rock. Um, and the third one, you know, just to throw a bone to the people down in Colorado Springs is, is Pikes Peak, uh, not by the standard bar trail route, which is, is still open in, in, in winter, but super long like 25 miles or something round trip. But if you go over to the backside and start from the Crags trailhead um, and follow the, the winter route from that at Pikes Peak, it's about nine miles and, and 4,000, maybe 4,500 feet. Um, but it, it's a doable day trip that, again, avoids almost all avalanche danger. Um, the, the upper half of the route, you know, once you get up toward Devil's Playground, you're literally just walking on the side of the, the Pikes Peak Highway, which they, they keep open year round. So you know, especially if you're worried about um, about trying a winter 14er and, and you're you're unsure if, if you have enough gear or you're unsure if you're in shape enough or you're unsure um, about the dangers and you you want to kind of 
um, mitigate that as much as you can. You know, you go go hike Pikes Peak from from the Crags Trailhead and do it on a day when the highway's open. You know, when when there's good weather or they're running the uh, the train, the tram up to the summit. And then you know, if if you find yourself in trouble, there's always rangers, or you can get to the summit house and try to negotiate. You know, taking the tram down or something. But uh, the the gist of it is that there there are other people around. You're not out there entirely on your own or with your own group. So th- those are the the three that I that I threw out there is beginner uh, winter fourteeners. It's nice with Pikes Peak that you have that kind of fallback plan B. That's that's cool. So it would be a good one for people to try who are just a little bit antsy about whether this is their thing or not. That's a good idea. Yeah, and I would still always say you know be self sufficient. Don't don't count on on other people or finding somebody else. But but they they do keep that road open. Um, mo- as much as they can in the winter, if there's a big snowstorm or a big windstorm, they close it down. Uh, they keep the tram running as much as they can. So if you pick a good weather day and you know that people are driving up the road or the, or the train is running, um, then, you know, you can even get it. One of the most, uh, bizarre experiences I've had on a, on a winter 14 is the first time I did pike from, from crags in the winter. Um, there's another one of those just, just obscenely windy days. And me and my one partner were hiking up and, we're, we're covered head to toe. We're wearing like all these layers and, and I have a balaclava on and goggles. And, um, it's just been like a hellacious, you know, couple hours hike up to the summit. We get there and, and the, the summit gift shop is open. So we, we could go in there and take off all of our layers. And we had like hot coffee and a donut and a cheeseburger. <laughs> and, you know, you could buy like, you know, they, they had people working it, you know, they had, they had retail workers up there. You know, you could have bought, you know, a, and I summited Pikes Peak t-shirt right there if you wanted to. It was just kind of a, a unique experience that Pikes Peak can offer. Oh, that's really cool. Well, man, where does the time go? We get started talking about this stuff, and it just goes away way too fast. But, Jeff, tell us how people can get a, a hold of the Colorado Mountain Club so that they can learn some of these skills, find out about all the, the classes that you offer and the events that you have. Sure, yeah. I I, um, I did want to point out, too, that I, I have a, a blog that I maintain called iceandtrail.com. And I have um, two two uh, blog entries that would be relevant to uh, people listening to this podcast and interested in winter 14ers, but um, 10 things you need to know for hiking in the snow, and then five winter 14ers uh, for beginners. So there's, there's some good resources there. I've tried to pull a lot of what we've talked about today and there. And then um, the Colorado Mountain Club is, you know, we've been around for more than 100 years, and we offer all sorts of classes ranging from Intro to hiking, you know, if you moved here and, and you've never been on a trail before, um, all the way through ice climbing and high altitude mountaineering. But we offer so much for people that are interested in winter 14ers. Uh, basic mountaineering school would be probably the, the main class that we'll start up here in a couple, and um, can't remember the exact date, but at some point this winter, basic mountaineering school will start and they teach uh, basic avalanche awareness, all this gear stuff. They teach you how to use an ice axe, how to walk in crampons, all that good stuff. Um, you know, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's basic mountaineering school. Um, from there, you can move into high altitude mountaineering, which basically trains people to climb mountains like Mount Rainier and, and Denali. And we also offer a, a ton, and, and again, I, I can't stress this enough, of these these avalanche courses. Um, everything from avalanche terrain avoidance, which is one of those basic um, avalanche awareness seminars I was, I was talking about earlier. Uh, we offer avalanche level one, avalanche level two. You know, you can get your, your full certification in avalanche science through the CMC, and uh, it's just absolutely, absolutely critical information. And we offer several of those almost uh, monthly, probably several times a month. We have some sort of avalanche school going on. And, and you can just go to, to cmc.org slash schools to see all, all of our upcoming schools. And, and this time of year, uh, most of them center around winter hiking and avalanche awareness. I mean, that's a lot of resources. Thanks for that. So cmc.org slash school for avalanche training. 
the Avalanche, uh, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, that URL, you can look up CAIC, it pops right up, but the URL is avalanche.state.co.us. And then your blog is iceandtrail.com. And I just glanced at that. Dude, it looks awesome. I'm going to have to spend some time uh, during one of these colder winter days enjoying your blog. That's really cool. Yeah, there's probably too many dog photos, but I try to to put some real information in between those. (laughs) People love dogs, man. It's awesome. Dogs are great. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. Sure. Yeah. And and just just real quick, one more uh, resource I wanted to throw out is there's uh, there's a lot of places to get accurate and good weather forecasts, but um, in terms of, of backcountry snow reports, uh, there's a website called opensnow.com that just has really spot on and they're, they're geared towards skiers. It's meant for the resort skiers and the backcountry skiers. But in terms of actually forecasting how much snow is going to fall in the mountain ranges at elevation, they have daily updates. And it's, uh, it's part of my morning reading along with the CA, CAIC report. Okay, well, I'm going to put all of these links in the show notes because they're great resources for people. And, you know, listeners, winter mountaineering is a blast. And I would encourage anybody who's even slightly interested in what it's like to give it a shot, but do it safely, get some training first, take some friends with you and, and enjoy it. It's, it's magical. It really is. It's just magical. So Jeff, thanks yeah, again it, for being with us. Yeah. Thanks a ton for having me on again. I, uh, I look forward to, to speaking again about something else at some point. Yeah, we'll do it, man. And for all of our listeners out there, as always, until the next show, get out there and have some fun. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.